continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. What's up? I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Chris the Chew Manchu and our wonderful producer, Dr. Angela Zane. Say hi, Angela. Hey, y'all. Our guest tonight is Dr. Ben Danielson to discuss uh, anti-racism in medicine. But before we dive into the content, hey, Chris. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about the show? Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Benjamin Danielson is a clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington. He completed undergraduate studies at Harvard and completed medical school at the University of Washington. He worked at a pediatric clinic serving kids from diverse, mostly low-income families for about 20 years until one year ago. Dr. Danielson resigned his position at Seattle Children's Hospital one year ago in protest against racism and other inequities. Dr. Danielson works on boards, government councils, and other entities to address issues of injustice. He tries to be of support to many brilliant community champions who are doing the hard work of fighting oppression. We're excited for Dr. Danielson to teach us about the multiple levels of racism, the importance of validation when addressing lived experiences, and not to negate your own power. We are very excited to bring you Dr. Benjamin Danielson to the Cribsiders. Uh, Ben, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm so happy to be part of the Cribside. I've been like hoping, I was looking for it. I was just wishing that perhaps I could join this uh, august and awesome and audacious group. So I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. We are so happy to have you. And I, you know, this is really... I think the game changer in, in most of the work that our guests have done, the advocacy work, that the clinical work that you've done, I think this is just going to take it to the whole next level, finally made it to the Cribsiders. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're excited. We're excited. To I'm have marking you. this moment. Um, this moment goes on the calendar. <laughs> we would love to get to know a little bit more about you. Our listeners would love to get to know a little bit more about you. Can you describe yourself in kind of maybe a, a one-liner or some of the things that you enjoy maybe outside of medicine? Um, I enjoy a lot outside of medicine. Outside of medicine is maybe even where I learned medicine, right? Like most of us, um, despite my uh, loan repayments and all of that for all that official training, I think I learned more about uh, becoming a community physician from community, which is maybe why that word goes in front. I'm a black man, proud to be part of an incredible black community in Seattle. Yes, there's a lot of incredible black community in Seattle. And I'm part of a legacy of a clinic that was started in the civil rights era by strong black women and their history lives on and has taught people like me how to how to show up and maybe how to keep learning how to be a physician. Excellent. Excellent. So my favorite question, warm-up question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? This sounds like one of those interview questions. If I answer this correctly, do I get to <laughs> like be part of your team after this or like totally. totally pass it? You did the consulting game. Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you uh, an experience. Um, when I was first practicing, finished residency, um, I think I still wore a white coat with my name embroidered on it. And I really had that deceptive feeling that I was supposed to be the smartest person in the room when I was a 
coming into clinical settings and stuff like that. I walked into a room with this wonderful uh, Somali mom and her two preteen aged boys. And we're getting into the well visit. And she said, you know, Dr. Ben, uh, you're not going to see these boys for a couple of years, sending them back to Kenya to go to school there. And I was I was so into trying to be smart, right? And and cool and kind of like on top of my like social justice game. So I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. You're taking those boys out of uh, America because they are starting to be seen as black males and black men. And black men in America get stigmatized and traumatized and violentized. Yes, I make up words a lot. And so um, you're going to send them out of the country because of the exposure and the identification of being a black male. And I was going like this for like minutes and minutes. And finally, this very kind Somali mom started shaking her head and smiling. And she said, you're a very nice doctor. You're probably very smart. And I really appreciate your uh, sharing this with me. But that's not the reason at all. I'm uh, sending them back to Kenya because there are better schools in Kenya than there are in the United States. It was just a, a step back for me, both about like, wow, can we check our assumptions even when we think we're being like righteous and cool? And also um, uh, the deeper assumptions we make about education and opportunity and, and the choices that parents have to make. So I've maybe I've told that one before to Angela, but um, that's been uh, one that has stuck with me a lot. That's, that's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. Angela, do you have a question? Yeah, I think uh, what about a book that you feel like every physician or just every person should read? Uh, you're catching me on a day when, okay, let's just, let's just imagine this is Black History Month. And um, I'm just going to say it this way. Every white person out there wants to get the, uh, the anti-racism self-help kind of book going, right? Sort of white centering. Uh, this is how you become a better anti-racist. And I'm a little bit tired of those in some ways, although I really appreciate all the books I've read from Ibram Kendi to uh, everyone. Um, but what I really appreciate are the books that teach without talking so so directly about the practices that you need to adopt to be, to be anti-racist. And so one of my favorite books of all time is actually The Water Dancer, which is by Tenehisi Coates, who's written some other great books on uh, that really speak to issues of anti-racism. But there's so much more about lifting up the power and the magic of, of Black identity in America, even in the midst of enslavement. And I think that there's just something more powerful, more abundant, asset-oriented, perhaps, about really thinking about an incredible story that brings all of these important concepts to light and does not say these are the algorithmic steps you're supposed to take in order to be anti-racist. Uh, amazing recommendation. That's been on, I've read other, it's been on my to-read list, and maybe now that will uh, make it to the top. I, I appreciate the the rec. Give yourself time, because once you start, you'll read it like probably all the way through, you know, just load up on your snacks and just be ready to be taken, transformed. All right. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Well, I'm very excited to to get into some content and kind of talk about this very important topic of racism in medicine. It's something that we as an organization very much have as part of our mission and try to incorporate in every topic as best we can. And sometimes we struggle and fall short. And sometimes I think we continue to just make sure that it's a part of, of the learning that we have for everything we do. And so I'll tell you what, Angela, would you want to start us off with our first clinic scenario and some questions? 
Yeah, sure thing. So let's say that you're at Kashak Children's outpatient clinic and you're seeing Crystal. Uh, Crystal is eight and she's here for her well child visit. Her parents, you know, think she's doing really well. The only concern that they have is that they've noticed some increased breast tissue and some axillary hair mm. growth. Um, and when you leave the room to precept, you plan to refer her to endocrinology to do a workup for precocious puberty. But then when you present, um, your preceptor says, you know, that isn't necessary because earlier puberty is actually normal in black girls. And it should be noted here that Crystal is black. And so there's lots to unpack in this case here. But let's start with some foundations for our audience. Um, when people talk about racism in medicine, you know, what do they really mean? What are some terms we should know? Race in medicine? Is that the way you ask that question? Yeah, like when people, you know, when people are like, oh, there's a lot of racism in medicine. Yeah. Um, you know, there's structural racism, there's interpersonal racism, there's anti-racism. Like, what are we, what are we even saying here? What are we saying? I think we're saying um, something that is so built into this place that we call the USA, this, this place we call America, that it's sometimes hard to actually tease out and extricate. Uh, I think what we're saying is that there is such a deep-seated a sense of absorbed racism that, that anyone, myself, you, anybody else, has adopted and brought into our lives and our practices in the way that we think, that it takes an incredible amount of conscious effort to start to pause and say, wait a minute, um, what assumptions am I making when I, when I hear this statement that uh, all black kids have earlier puberty and, and where did where did that story come from? Uh, a person much wiser than me has tried to teach me to replace some of my outrage with curiosity, and occasionally I'm okay at it and able to sort of step back and, and lead with curiosity. Where did that story come from? In medicine, we don't always um, like to hear the word story because it sounds like it's something different than fact. And uh, I'm going to intentionally use story um, because uh, stories are, are facts as much as anything else that we can understand are. So I really wonder where that story comes from. And I would be really curious if I had the wherewithal and the time and the opportunity to speak to somebody who said that to me. I wonder, where did you learn that? And why did you learn that in that way? Is it a default? Is it a, an attempt to uncenter the standards that have been built around whiteness that are so deeply structured that we actually don't understand how to unpack that and unlearn that? And so we create uh, quick bridges and uh, easy uh, ways to sort of approach that. And so we've created that kind of a, of a story or a tale to, to carry us through. Is it that there's a discomfort on the interpersonal level? Because uh, interpersonal racism and bias can show up in so many ways, many more ways than the ones that we actually recognize and see and can see in our own behavior. Uh, insight is really hard with interpersonal racism. Is it part of a structured model that has been passed on to us where we've adopted the idea that we are going to standardize the non-standard practice of moving categorical racial designation out of the other forms of development and biology that we understand, which is really interesting, right? Because the things we call race don't really have much biologic foundation to them at all, do they? I love this line from Tenehisi Coates that says that uh, race is the child of racism, not the father. Which basically, to me at least, says uh, we created the idea of racism before we created the idea of race. And we use the idea of race in order to sort of justify and uphold racism. So I think about those things. It would really make me want to understand where that narrative was coming from. And it would make me also want to think a little bit more about what other structures that we have that lead to foundations that, that will carry this kind of messaging on 
from people we call mentors and uh, leaders in health uh, who are trying to teach us and guide us. That was a long Yeah, answer. so it really, it really is <laughs> <laughs> almost like you've been doing this no, your whole no. life. <laughs> Um, so it, it really sounds like we can't really separate uh, racism in medicine from racism everywhere else. And just like everywhere else, there are what I heard you say is really interlocking spheres. So you have things like interpersonal racism, um, which is bias between bias with power between people. Um, the power is important here mm-hmm. because of racial power in society. And then you have things like structural racism, and we can talk about the institution of medicine. And then, you know, there are other levels like internalized racism um, and, um, you know, systemic racism, but it sounds like they all kind of interact with each other. Yeah, I think the intersectionality of all of that is really important because sometimes when we try to unpack and learn even about issues of racism or anti-racism, we end up packaging them sometimes in ways that make them seem so clearly distinct and distinctive in their layers, their tiers. You can almost picture those concentric circles kind of working their way out there around racism. And the truth, like everything else in the world and in the biology and the way we learn, is that there's just much more an overlapping gradation, isn't there? That all of these factors intersect and interact and they cloud. Sometimes they clarify, but more often they amplify each other's effects so that the impact of structural racism is that much more powerful at that system level, at that institutional level, because of the interpersonal racism that also occurs in the same time. You know, as we're talking about definitions and exactly what we mean when we're talking about racism, you know, you, you th- we've thrown out this word anti-racism. And, you know, for a lot of uh, newer newer listeners, you know, people who are still trying to understand what's going on, that might be a term we haven't heard before. Can you explain what that means a little bit? First, I hope. I hope people have thought about this and, and maybe have at least started to form their own sense of what that means. But um, it's interesting. I'll be honest with you. I wish, uh, I hope, I look forward to the day when we have a, some better language than anti-racism because that is still sort of a, a sort of responsive term to racism. And the way at least I conceptualize anti-racism is much more a proactive set of actions that really lift up what you'd rather see beside, <laughs> instead of racism. So um, I'm looking forward to the pro-liberation word that really uh, helps us move a little bit away from this is what we want to avoid by acting in a certain way and gets us towards this is what we want to see. But for now, anti-racism, I think is really conceptualized as as an action, not a, a passive state, that it is very emphasizing the idea that I think Ibram Kendi, in a way, and Kamara Jones, in other ways has sort of said that passivity is actually still racist, <laughs> that um, inaction is actually still supports the status quo and still continues in its complicit way to uh, further the impact of racism. So you actually have to be swimming against the current. You actually have to be expending energy. You have to actually be in action in order to address issues of racism. And so for me, that's where this term anti-racism really comes into play. It's not enough to be Switzerland. You cannot be neutral when it comes to really addressing issues of racism. Apologies to uh, Switzerland. <laughs> I want to go back to, you mentioned the the narrative of where did this come from for the precocious puberty. And I think from all our medical training, currently the system still teaches things like tickle cell is more common in black children or using uh, calculators for urinary tract infections or risk stratification that are race-based. 
we often are taught to use, I was taught to use race in the one-liner to highlight an individual's risk for autoimmune disease or diabetes. Um, and in learning these, I remember, you know, I, I felt like I was learning these to address the inequities in health um, and to try to be, you know, a woke physician that understood and like fights for these disparities. But recognizing this, you know, addresses the genetic component of of race. How, how do how do you explain this to to trainees or learners? How do you reconcile this, especially because I think even our trainees, medical students who are aware of terms like anti racism, are still on a daily basis being inundated with this teaching, this learning, and uh, it's tough to parse out that and management of heart mm-hmm. failure. You know? Such a great point. Uh, it just keeps reminding me um, how language still can be used to further actually status quo, to further issues of racism, can actually be a barrier to helping us actually change the way we understand, think, behave, and grow as human beings. And there's just this cautionary piece for me, two points that I'll mention, and then we can get back on track with the topics more specifically. One is that the language of equity, the language of anti-racism, it's very easy for that to become a tool to perpetuate racism anyway. And we see this all the time. I don't know if I need to say this or not, but there are plenty of people who are uh, brought into brand new positions that have something like equity officer, diversity officer, but are not vested with the actual authority or accountability that they can hold leadership to, to make changes. The language of equity can be used to subvert equity, to promote racism in any way we want to. And I just think that lifts us a little bit away from what are the right words and what's what's the right way to do this. This is much more about what's in your heart than what's in your nomenclature. The second thing I guess I would say is that even as you try to sort of draw away from the harmful use of what I think are um, really racist, race-based approaches, and we see that in things like you know, EGFR with its inappropriate use of race to actually prevent people from being eligible for transplants and having other negative effects. Removing the language of race does not remove the language, the action of racism. And I've watched where advocates for addressing the issue of EGFR and taking race out of it, then sometimes take it all the way to saying, we shouldn't be talking about race in any way. Because, you know, that was that 1990s kind of I don't see race, uh, colorblind, kind of really um, unreal world that some people want to try to foist out there. So I think that it's just important to understand that there are many ways to move in and out of really being true to an anti-racist approach and mentality. And even when someone is, is trying to improve their language or trying to improve their approach, trying to improve the dialogue and the systems, the power of oppression is incredible in that space. And it seeks to reassert itself even in that work. I don't mean to say that addressing racism is somehow so overwhelming that you can't do it because I know that we can. But I also want to say this is one of those places where uh, eternal vigilance is an important component of change making. That was not answering your question, but I was addressing the thing I wanted to say. And sometimes that's just a compromise we have to get, right? No, I think that I, I, I hear you. And I think that's very much appreciated. And I think it seems like now there's institutionals that are addressing it and, and, and trying to prioritize their DEI work and 
I, I'm hopeful that, as you mentioned, that there, there's productive work and that there's not just the nomenclature and making it seem like things are being addressed. Yeah. So, Again, as long as we are asking, where did we get that story from? Uh, even as we make improvements, what story led to us making that improvement? And I think that helps us stay grounded so that we're not using false cures, uh, not using snake oil when we absolutely need to have uh, much better evidence-based <laughs> approaches. To kind of say out loud, you know, it, to, or to recap this case that we just did, we are basically faced with a race-based teaching, right? That although precocious puberty is atypical for people Crystal's age, eight years old, this person is taught that it is actually normal for a Black child, um, specifically a Black girl, to undergo puberty at this age. And I think there's a lot of levels of racism to unlock here. You know, um, there's a lot of environmental racism causing chemicals in these neighborhoods that then predispose people to these diseases. And then there's um, structural racism causing weathering in individuals. And of course, there's the interpersonal part of this. And so with all of that in mind, why is this assumption that precocious puberty is normal um, in Black children? Why is this assumption problematic? I think you said it better than I could, so I appreciate. I always love a question when the answer is kind of built into it so nicely. But um, I, I do believe that what you're essentially saying, if you start to sort of step back from from those statements, is that we are normalizing trauma. We are normalizing the exposure to trauma and oppression in a way that's a piece of this, isn't it? We're saying that, oh, it's okay for a black person to have something uh, that ends up leading to a physical manifestation due to the environmental racism, the structural racism, the genetic and inherited and generational racism that's occurring. Uh, it's okay. It's normal. That word normal is an incredibly powerful word, isn't it? And I think it it really makes you realize that when we normalize something that is abnormal, we are saying that we approve of the abnormal. And so for this case where you have a patient in front of you yeah. and maybe a colleague has said this or a parent has said, I'm not worried though because you know I had uh, puberty at a young age or when do you introduce race, if you do, and racism into uh, patient discussions? Is this something that you're counseling parents or patients on? Are you are you talking about race in the exam room absolutely. ever? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I, I hold a privilege in being a black physician and working with these amazing and brilliant black and brown children that I think I have a closer access to conversations that, that not everybody may, able, may be able to have. I appreciate that. I take it as a responsibility as well. I'll tell you that, for instance, in my practice, moms would bring their kids in, especially young boys and girls around 11 or 12 years old, to have what, what we call the talk, to actually have a, a very intentional conversation about racism and um, the evolution of the uh, racist experience that a young person has as they become older and bigger. And what we see in this country is that almost related to this case scenario, which I know I keep drifting from, that black girls are seen as older than they are uh, chronologically. They're maturized as part of the racial bias that, that is built into that and allows for greater denigration by doing that. And in a similar way, you know, there are black boys, brown boys are quickly seen as people who 
are going to be treated by the criminal justice system as adults, even though their brains are still developing, even though their lives are still so strongly informed by youth, even though we know at a public health and a biologic and an internal and a, just a natural sense that a young person still has a long way to go in understanding how to traverse this world in a way that is just and right and balanced and uh, helpful. So uh, this is, man, Angela said it best, this is just such a piece of the bigger environment and world around us. And uh, we can't pretend that it doesn't enter into our world in medicine. And I'm going to say one more thing, because I'm just over-talking already, is that the medical world also sometimes wants to pose itself as passive in this. We are just um, passive feature of a larger environment. I don't know if that makes sense. The idea that, well, the whole country is, everything about the country is racist. We are just sort of in the river of that flow. We're not active participants in it. And I think it's really important to dispel that myth as well, that, that racism is also active and dynamic and occurring both at the interpersonal level and at the structural level and at the systemic level. It's intentional and the outcomes that we see, the risk that any black mom, regardless of her income, takes on in having a child in this country, the chance of a, a black child getting adequate treatment, the chance of a, an adult getting adequate attention to their cancer is dictated uh, so strongly by racism that it is, it is an active feature, not a passive one. And I'd love to, to keep asking about that because I, I, I notice in myself sometimes some defensiveness of we should be talking about um, um, race and racism in the exam room and this feeling of like, we don't have time, like I'm already, you know, running behind and then realizing that this is, you know, part of the structural problem to begin with, that there's a, a you know, time component. But are there, are there things that you, you know, suggest of how a provider can be part of a broader solution? Is it, is it taking the time? Is it not turning away patients? Is it, working in a specific environment, advocating, like, how do you see, and I'll, you know, be very open and honest as a white person. And as there are listeners of white listeners um, that maybe don't have that access and want to be an ally, are there things that you think people that are in the medicine field can do to kind of, to move things in the right direction? Yeah. So first of all, medicine crew is such a hierarchical profession uh, that one of its uh, consequences is that everyone ends up feeling relatively powerless to make changes and feel uh, very much a victim to the system that they're in. And I mean nurses and doctors, I mean attending physicians, I mean heads of departments. And especially in this past year, I've seen that play out over and over again. And there's sometimes a sense of, if I just got to this next level, then I would have a greater influence over the way our systems work to uh, undermine the attempts to be anti-racist. And I just want to make that point because I really want to encourage people to actually know their power, to know and seek their power to, to boldly and audaciously reach even above their power. When I was playing basketball, one of the things my coach always had to teach me early on was you have to shoot uh, a basket beyond the rim uh, in order for it to go in. If you just keep shooting for the edge of the rim, it just never, it, you just go, oh, it's going to come up short. And that idea of you have to shoot a little bit beyond in order to get, especially what you really, really feel is important to get. And I think that we shoot short all the time by saying, I just don't have power in this scenario. So I want to start with that, which I know is very high level, but I want to reinforce and encourage the medical student is the person who sees so much more about what's happening uh, from the bedside 
to the conference room than anybody else. The nurse observes things and understands things from a perspective that nobody else does. The intern has a handle on so many dynamics and relationships all the way through and has conversations possible that are much more powerful than anybody else can have. Your power, just you better not undermine your own power. Plenty of other people want to undermine your power. Why would you, why would you take your own power away? The second thing I would say is that we do have to advocate for time. Time has become a weaponized tool to make sure that, that we don't have the opportunity to make the changes that we need to make. If we were really organized in this approach as healthcare professionals, as organized healthcare professionals, we would be championing time in a way that it hasn't been talked about before. Without time, almost nothing is possible. Without time, you can't build relationships. And if we're talking about uh, me understanding an elder, uh, you understanding the youngest child, me understanding um, an indigenous person's needs, you understanding a woman's needs, without time, we can't do what we're told we're supposed to be able to do, which is actually see someone else and listen and understand and be able to, to be um, present with them on their terms. I think the next thing is that we have to think about how many ways we can reclaim our listening skills. And I'm going to say reclaim because I think that there are many things about the hectic schedule and lifestyle of medicine that slowly but steadily bleed our ability to listen away. Be honest. When you're in a room with patients sometimes, are you thinking about the next patient? Are you thinking about what you need to do in order to get your own body home? Are you thinking about whether or not you're close to being on call and, and when you need to get sign out? How do we just take the time to learn the skills to actually be present. And I think mindfulness has an incredible role to play in making the time that we have that much more valuable. When we are working with our elders, our attendings, our mentors in this space, uh, we have an opportunity to lift up what we're learning and what we need. And most of the time in a mentor-mentee relationship, the mentor's responsibility is to understand what you need and try to help advocate for you in that way. I'm just naming some of the things that come to mind right now, but um, this is such an important topic that you bring up. I think that we really need to make it our work and understand that it is in our power to actually see these kinds of changes happen. And time is really vital for that. Is that helpful? Or I, I hope that resonates for some people who are who are listening. No, I I, I completely get get you. And you know, time is so important to all of us. You know, I was, you know, recently I've I've. Uh, had to pick up some more um, administrative tasks. So then I sort of bought out some time of my own time so they can spend time doing other things. But what ends up happening is I end up scheduling patients during my admin time. But because yeah. I don't always have patients like back to back, I find I actually spend so much more time with these patients, which, you know, obviously, you know, they grow is to fill your schedule, but I've really cherished this extra time with them and I get to understand and I can, uh, with something as complex as as race and and everything else with with these patients, and especially you know, I have my own lived experiences, and as a as a man of of Chinese descent, I've experienced racism in a very different way than other people have, and so I think the only way for me to understand anyone else is to have time to sit and talk to them. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's such a good point. This is hard work, and. Um, it asks a lot of us. I think that there are tools that we can use. For some of us, it's probably, you know, at times as straightforward as I need to take three breaths before I walk into that room. And those three breaths are going to um, pull me out of the past, 
take the little bit of the future out of my mind and set me in the present. Whatever that mantra is, whatever that practice is, it's, it's going to make a difference. I guarantee it. I promise you that. When you're in the room, I think that there's a mindset that we can have that's different than what are your problems. And I think it really gets to what abundance and brilliance do I have the honor of spending time with? And when you start from that perspective, then you really, really want to know someone's story, right? You really want to understand, like, please share with me uh, your brilliance. What what makes you this incredible light on this planet? And how do I bring something away from this experience, no matter how brief it is, that will help me be a better person and help me share that light with the next person as well in some ways? Our methodology, when I think by design and related to I'm going to say oppression because I'm an activist, is uh, to focus on problems and immediate problems and the immediate problems of individuals. And as long as we do that, there will be an endless supply of problems and immediate problems and the immediate problems of individuals to keep us busy and keep us a little bit distracted from, from seeing beauty, from seeing brilliance, from tapping into that, and from uh, stepping above that and saying, what about this scenario do I want to change? Who told me that this is the way we had to do medicine? Um, ben, Chris was talking a little bit about uh, his own lived experience. And, you know, for full transparency, I'm an East Asian um, cis woman. And so uh, I think all of us might experience a different form of racism um, or perpetuate different forms of racism on this episode right now, um, as well as our other intersecting identities. I guess my question for you is, you know, I think it it feels intuitive that we should be talking to patients, you know, about race and racism. And so, you know, do you have different conversations with patients of different lived experiences, you know, Black, Brown, East Asian, Indigenous, um, Latina? And then do you talk to the white patients and their families about this? I invite those conversations. Again, I'm not going to try to project my experience on other people. I think even for white families, uh, privileged families, sometimes they choose to come to me because they uh, feel like I'm going to carry some experiences, uh, especially perhaps experiences about racism that they want their child to understand and know. And maybe they also want their child to be in a waiting room that feels like a United Nations and has these beautiful kids from many different backgrounds and different languages and all of that. But it's that totality of that experience that becomes really important. I think acknowledging that and seeing that and speaking about that, regardless of whatever combination of identities are, are with you, is really important, partly for self-learning. And we have to be really clear and acknowledge that we're constantly learners, even as we are teachers or even as we are providing care, we are, we are learning in those moments too. And I think it's really important to understand that there's a duality or multi, multiality, I don't know, Justin, is that a word? That's not a word. A multi-ality. Multi-ality. It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was on Wordle this week. Yep. Thank you, man. Um, yep. I got you. That that really speaks to the idea that that in my existence, uh, I'm both oppressor and I am oppressed. In my experiences and identities, I have uh, myriad opportunities to know privilege and, and uh, many opportunities to also um, be uh, the recipient of trauma. And there is an important reality about that, that we have to hold it. It actually helps humanize us in the work of anti-racism. It helps us hold ourselves to a standard that says, I am not above <laughs> this experience, um, or that my one 
layer of identity doesn't make me expert in every layer of different identities and intersections. And I think that becomes really important for us as growing and learning human beings. I, I'd love to get your sense on, so I, I appreciate you. I mean, you're, 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 I appreciate all the, the beautiful insights that you continue to share. And I think that make us not just better providers, but people. Moving on with our case, I think there's, there's an example that I would love to get your insights on where this was actually something that occurred in our clinic very recently, where our patient, Crystal, uh, explicitly stated that she was having overt racism in, in school that was that was not implicit bias, but explicit right. racism. And I was precepting uh, and the, the resident was was outraged. I think not surprised and naive and confused, but was appropriately upset and wanted to help and wrote a letter to the school and was trying to figure out how they could best support this patient as a physician in this environment. Uh, and I would love to to hear if you were that preceptor instead of me, how would you guide a resident or a trainee through navigating this type of experience with a patient? Um, a few things come into my mind. And so if, uh, if I'm pulling assumptions out of the air, I, I hope people know which ones to discard and which ones to apply to experiences that might be more relevant to them. One thing that I would caution around is that uh, the practice of medicine is sometimes confused with the practice of saviorship, that we get inculcated with this sense that we are the fixers and that we are the ones that are going to ride in on the white horses and and uh, rescue and save the day. And I just, I feel that that posture will ultimately lead to more harm and that this is such an important moment for us as physicians to uncenter ourselves, that it's worth being conscious both as as preceptor or mentor, as well as resident or mentee, uh, and to be really like explicit, like saying, okay, now let's talk about how we uncenter ourselves from this, because one of the responses that a training physician might have is, wow, that was really hard for me. And uh, let's just say, try living that every single day and actually being the direct recipient of racism. I don't mean that to shame anybody, but I do mean that it is hard sometimes for us to uncenter ourselves from these experiences. The second piece I'll say is that I have a foundational definition of equity and the first sentence in my definition of equity, that the solutions to oppression are best named by those who are most oppressed. And so if I'm in the room with someone and I'm discussing something and this uh, amazing young person has this incredible ability to explain the uh, racist experiences that they've been going through. I want to have a conversation that at least seeks to understand what, what solutions and ideas they have rather than what solutions and ideas I have. If that student said, please write a letter to my school and I do that, that's great. If that's not the student's idea, I would question why, who told me the story that that was the right thing to do necessarily. I, I don't mean to paralyze response, but I do mean to center those most oppressed, uh, because when we start doing that in our in activities like this, then you start to do that at a systemic level as well. And you start to say, you know, before we build this program that addresses the unhoused in my community, I'm going to listen to and be led by the unhoused in this community, rather than whatever beautiful, great ideas I think come up in my own head. That's, I think, something worth mentioning and teaching and saying and learning and reminding both as mentor and mentee. I think the next thing that I would really want to understand is where I can be uh, supportive to this particular patient relative to my 
experience with them and, and where there needs to be someone else in that space or in that picture. I love the idea that healthcare is a team sport. You can tell I'm an ex-jock. I just use my second sports reference, but um, there's absolutely a team sport. And there are, uh, there are medical assistants and nurses and nurse practitioners and social workers whose lived experiences sometimes are so much more connected, the experience of someone who's coming to visit you than your own. And um, it's almost hubris to say, I want to be the one that is is connecting to that experience. That's a time to really think about about who your team is and how your team can be best supportive of, of what this particular person's needs are. Those are just a few things I think about. Oh, yeah. I actually, um, you kind of just like dropped this when you were <laughs> saying all of that. But you said, you know, your definition of equity, and then you gave us the first sentence. But I'd love to hear your full definition. And, you know, I think oftentimes we talk about racism and race in medicine as what is detracting from like a better practice of medicine. But I'd love to see that definition helps us like add more, you know, like how to imagine a better future and start moving towards that future. Love that question. Actually, did a graduation address for the School of Social Work here at the University of Washington, and and I'll just admit that I spent twenty minutes kind of saying we need language of hope, that we need language of destination, not of uh, of source, that we need to be able to talk better about where we want to go to, um, which is I think a little bit to your point in your question, and I don't know that we really have that language so well yet. We're still responding, and I think in a way appropriately, because the impact of oppression and its many different forms that are so rooted in racism is so powerful that it's maybe appropriate that a lot of our dialogue is really in response to it. Um, but I also hope we keep, we keep struggling with the idea of like, what's the hoped for? What's the abundant language that we want to get to in that? Getting back to your sort of, what are other parts of the definition of equity? For me, um, a piece of that is um, that the work of equity is a endeavor around power. And if you are not talking about power, you're not talking about equity. You're not talking about anti-racism. You're not talking about oppression. If you're not being very clear and explicit about a power conversation and exactly how power is going to be shifted or lifted up or seen and recognized and appreciated, then you're not talking about equity. Another piece for me is that if we're having true dialogue about equity, then it is not part of our optional environment. This feels especially important to me right now as, as so many of us in healthcare are exhausted, right? I've been going two plus years straight on, no breaks at super levels beyond our, our physical capacities. We're fatigued and exhausted and weary. And there's a sense sometimes when you're really exhausted that anti-racism work is a luxury that it's something I'll get to when I've figured out the other pieces of, we create structures around that, like uh, Maslow's kind of hierarchy and somehow anti-racism is, is somehow further up on the top. Uh, I want us to really continue to be very focused on the idea that that racism is foundational, is at the base. Anti-racist work is not the thing you do when you have extra time. <laughs> it's the thing that is built into every bit of the work that you do, even when you're tired. And even when you're fatigued, again, we have to find ways to talk about that that doesn't always feel like it's going to be extra exhausting. Because I feel like the emotional response I get from people when I'm talking anti-racism, they're like, oh, I feel so tired. <laughs> I feel so exhausted by the concept of this. And one thing I'll say as I close on this point is that I make the argument that oppression is much harder work than liberation. That oppression, holding people down, 
upholding systems that you know are harmful, uh, supporting the status quo when it is so morally and ethically painful to your soul, that is hard work. That is much harder work than the work of anti-racism, in my view. And I think if we talked about it that way, maybe we would uh, lift ourselves into a different space around it. I would love to expand on this, you know, concept of hope and of change. I think, you know, sometimes it can feel really hopeless if in this moment we can center the feelings of our trainees and our mm -hmm. audiences. Um, like we talked about before, there's so many levels of racism that we define, but obviously bleed into each other and interact. And for instance, like I do a lot of work on structural racism, but I'll be honest, if I were to have a patient like Crystal tell me that she had experienced racism or I wanted to talk to this family about it, I don't think I would know where to start. And that can feel really powerless. And, on you know, somebody can really know how to do that, but then not know how to advocate for a larger structural change. And so I would love to hear like your thoughts on that. Personally, would love any like tips you have for talking to patients mm -hmm. about race and racism. One tip that I hope is helpful is uh, just the importance of validation. And I would suspect, uh, again, the conversations I have might be different than the conversations someone else would have as a health professional. But let's just say the scenario involves a white resident and white attending or supervising physician and a black patient. I, I try to imagine what it would take for, for that young person to bring that up in that environment. And I, I think a lot about how sometimes the experience of racism is denied and, and denigrated, and sometimes in ways that we don't really realize. When I've brought up issues of racism, I, I did that in a kind of a big way a year ago. All of a sudden, the biggest work was around proving it and proving it in an almost forensic way. And I wonder what that means to a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old when you have to say, prove it to me. And we do that, right? We say, tell me what happened. And perhaps we also hint like, I wonder if that was just because of a misinterpretation. I wonder if that was just because the teacher was tired. I wonder if that was just because of a socioeconomic gap and not a racial one. And um, that act of, of negation of experience is extremely harmful, extremely powerful. I think as a pediatrician is particularly damaging to a young person. So the act of validation, however you want to say it, however you want to do it, it needs to be verbal, explicit, powerful, heartfelt, and, uh, and, and truly there in that moment, because it took a lot for that person to say that to you. I'm going to just maybe sit with that for a minute and just say that that, that itself, I think, is an important first step. I think this is this is a great segue into into kind of uh, wrapping things full circle a little bit, and for a clearly inspiring person as as you are, Ben, um, looking on a tone of optimism, are there things that you can suggest that people not just do to work on being anti-racist, but you know how can how can people incorporate this into their daily lives, or you know looking forward to to positive things? How can we have trainees, students, residents, preceptors, mentors uh, uh, do the good work? A few things that come to mind for me is uh, that helpful that are helpful for me and build optimism for me is uh, some of my best mentors are much much younger than me and they're they're medical students and even younger. Um, I've seen groups of medical students, especially black medical students, in these past years, who um, who absolutely expect something different. And this is an important point for me as a black male physician. And boy, let me tell you, there aren't too many of me out there. Um, we were taught to survive. 
We were taught to be twice as good. We were taught to be twice as articulate, twice as well dressed there early and on late, staying late and doing something above and beyond in order to get possibly just as far as a mediocre white male. And uh, in that teaching, there was a whole lot of expectation of suffering. I think women understand this. I think, I think many people who've been uh, marginalized in different ways understand this whole almost expectation of suffering in order to get even partly to the place that you want to get. The twice as good thing was really helpful to me, but it also taught me how to coach shift, how to be a bit of a chameleon, how to um, uh, wear a mask, essentially, when I was in the halls of medical school and the halls of hospitals. And, and I've had to unlearn some of that. But the medical students today, man, they just, they, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You get all of me. You get every bit of me, every piece of my, like, audacious, amazing self is coming all the way into this house. And it's going to make this house better. You best believe you have to, you have to know that because that's the way I'm showing up. And that is incredibly inspiring to me. And the expectation, not just, not just the hope, I would say a generation before, the one whatever might be between me and today in medical school, uh, went from suffering to hope, hoping for something to be better, hoping that change is going to happen. Uh, but hope sometimes comes without the expectation. And today's students are just like, we absolutely expect, we, we demand, I think maybe that's the next group, it's like demanding, demanding, demanding that something uh, better happen and change. And I find that that makes me want to wake up. That makes me want to live up to their expectations of what they see in the healthcare system. The next piece I'll say is that um, I will not let someone else define my sense of what my power is. And I, I hope that, that no one uh, allows themselves to be robbed of their power because, because of the silent and subtle pressure that says that you are not worth uh, speaking up, that your voice is not worthy, that you are not considered someone whose voice matters. And in our hierarchy, I think we we promulgate that message much too often. We speak as teachers sometimes rather than as listeners and learners to uh, those that we have a mentor-mentee relationship with, and that's, that's to our loss and to the detriment of the healthcare system. The next thing I look to is what is the evidence that humanity is amazing, right? <laughs> and um, I just, I cannot get my mind away from the idea that it, within the course of a year, this amazing industry of science and medicine created vaccines that were 90 plus percent effective against a brand new devastating virus. That is like, can we just pause and say that is one of the most amazing feats ever? And, and, and we're living right now in that time. And that is just so incredibly inspiring to me. And it also tells me if we can take a brand new thing and rise up to that and come up with incredible solutions within such a short time and, and we're willing to actually like do stuff like pause our economy and change our lives significantly for this, then I wonder if we had a 400-year-long problem that was so harmful to society that's, that is killing many, many more people than this virus is, and we have the ability to rally our resources and our, our minds and hearts and energies uh, to a vaccine for that virus, the things that we could do to address racism, oh my God, we could we could be doing so many incredible things. So I do not left myself off the hook. I um, call myself out on my complicity. I call myself out when I'm passive or acting a little bit too tired. And I just say, human beings are amazing. And, and this life is incredible. And the way that we support and see and, and connect to each other is something that is so much greater 
than whatever energy or power that we can recognize just with our eyes and ears and noses and touch that we can do so much better. And that's really, really inspiring to me. That's a, an amazing way, I think, to to kind of end uh, some of our conversation. I think that's inspiring and and wonderful. Um, Angela, do you want to ask the the final question? Yeah, you know, it's it's um, Ben. It's always such an honor and a pleasure to converse with you. And I don't really want this time to end, <laughs> but it's hard to believe that we are at our last question. And I think. Anybody who's worked with you knows that you are this, as Justin said, very inspiring, selfless person. And how can we join you on that journey? Like, are there any efforts that you're getting involved in that you want to plug or anything else that you feel like is important for us to know about? I would invite us to uh, do something that I think is actually a little bit challenging for human beings sometimes, which is um, um, start to identify the things that we absolutely know are wrong and undo them. Undoing things is uh, actually turns out a really incredibly complicated body of work. Um, but let's just start taking the things that we we are irrefutably aware of harmful. So for me, I've taken it to heart this concept of youth incarceration, which so absolutely does not work. It spends so much money for no effect. It actually does not decrease recidivism. It is so against all of the all of the natural knowledge and wisdom that we know about the potential promise of young people. It centers individuals when the problems are systems. Everything about youth incarceration does not work. Can we start getting together and working together to undo youth incarceration and really uh, reframe what we mean by justice, what we mean by rehabilitation or habilitation, what we mean by inviting people to be parts of their beloved communities instead of uh, separating and isolating them away from that. I would put the same energy offer and effort towards something else that we absolutely know is wrong and I call it an addiction, and it's our addiction to guns in this country. We absolutely know that our relationship to guns is an addiction. Uh, it is uh, unhealthy for us to have it, but somehow as a nation, we crave it. Uh, we do harm with it, and yet we continue to seek it out. We make unrealistic arguments or un illogical reasons why we need to have them when we absolutely don't, and many other countries can show us why we don't. Can we get together and undo something that we know is absolutely harmful and wrong and is so clear to me. I don't know anybody who can honestly say that the way we relate to guns in this country is healthy or honest or positive in any particular way. Maybe there's something else that you identify that you know of that is wrong. Um, I, I would love to join you in working to change something that you know is wrong, but has become somehow so deeply built into our society that it feels very hard for us to tease it apart, lift it up and extricate it. But I know we're capable. I know we're capable. And I know that when we work together, we are so capable of incredible things, so much greater than when we work in our own silos and when we work separately, or when we think that somehow that we're struggling on our own for issues that maybe more people care about than we realize. Amazing. I think that's that's a great note to end on of of kind of finding the outrage that you're you're passionate about and the wrongdoing that you want to fix. Ben, thank you so much for this. This has been incredibly insightful, inspiring. Uh, we are so lucky to have had you join us and share your time with us. So, so thank you for for joining the Cribsiders. An honor for me, and um, thank you for the hard, thought provoking questions. 
Uh, you all do a really nice job of uh, getting people to get beyond uh, the superficial answers. And uh, I think that takes both a bit of courage and a lot of skill. So I appreciate this time. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Crystal Nora and Dr. Angela Zane. We also would like to thank our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Be sure to check us out. I have been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Angela Zhang. And this has been Chris the Chew Manchu. Thank you. Good night, good morning, and the afternoon, wherever it is. See you guys. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.